So if you would open your Bibles to Psalm 26. And I've titled this Coming to Worship. And the reason is, is that many scholars and many commentators believe that this summarizes David's preparation for his coming before the Lord, going to the tabernacle to worship God. There's no way to identify the specific time in David's life when this psalm would have been written. And it's a difficult psalm to categorize because it has a strong pleading with God. There's an individual lament. There's a request for protection. And because of that, the psalm really fits into several different categories. But what we do know in this is that David always seems to be trying to shake his accusers, those who make false claims against him, false statements about him, and those that want to discredit him in some way. So I want you to think about that perspective, that particular challenge, which we might be able to identify with on some level, but usually David is in great danger when he is pleading for God's help, although there's not a specific instance mentioned here. We know that David is coming to worship, probably with a very heavy heart, likely with a great deal of uncertainty, and that he comes knowing of these accusations, and yet still confident in his standing before the Lord. I considered naming this three prayers and a praise, but that didn't sound very reverent. So coming to worship, thinking about what you did this morning in preparation for worship. Let's read together at Psalm 26, verses 1 through 12. We begin by reading, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the, one, with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place, and the congregations I shall bless the Lord. So we begin our examination in these four sections. Number one, it is a prayer of confidence. David says, vindicate me, O Lord. Now, biblically, that word vindicate has two pieces that we need to understand in order to understand properly what David is saying. The first thing that this means, the first part of the proper understanding is to judge. David is asking God, he is inviting him to examine his life, to take a close look to make an evaluation, to come up with some kind of an assessment or some kind of determination about the kind of life that David has been living. The second part of that understanding is not only to judge, but it is also to defend. In this request, it is 
that is included in this word vindicate is based upon what is discovered. So what David is saying is, God, I want you to judge my life, and on the basis of what you determine on your judgment of my life, I am asking you to defend me against my accusers. I am asking you to render a just verdict. In face of whatever accusations might be brought against David, he is asking God to judge both his life and then to defend him against his accusers. I want to ask you this. Think about going into a court of law where some egregious accusation has been levied against you and you know in the depth of your heart that you are absolutely and completely innocent. How would you feel walking into that legal setting. If you knew, without any reason of doubt, that you were innocent, you would probably walk into that doorway knowing that you were going to be exonerated. That's how David approached this request to the Lord. He is saying, I know the kind of life that I have lived. I am asking you to evaluate it and then defend it against my enemy. So he is confident in God's judgment being in his favor, and that confidence is based upon two things. One, his commitment to truth. Verse 1b, David says, For I have walked in my integrity. Now, the NIV says that I have led a blameless life. When you read that phrase, it kind of gives the idea that maybe David is espousing some kind of sinless perfection. That's not what David means by that, and that's not really what it means to walk with integrity. What David is claiming is to live according to the revealed truth of God that was in his life. When David says, I have walked according to my integrity, he is not saying that I have set the standard by which my integrity is going to be evaluated. I am walking by your standard and by everything that I know about your truth, I am living with an absolute commitment to your revealed truth to me. He is walking the walk, if you will. Despite what his accusers might be saying, David knows that he is walking in a way that will bring God's defense of him because his evaluation is going to be just. While David still is a sinful man, while David still fails and falls, the consistent path of his life is to love God and to follow Him. Secondly, David is confident in his commitment to God. Verse 1c, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. That phrase, without wavering, means without sliding away, without being shaken by difficulty of life or by uncertainty of the circumstances that I face or in the face of the accusations that have been levied against me. I have lived my life with an absolute commitment to God, and there has never been a time when I have wavered in my commitment to you. Despite his flaws and his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, David had a deep and life-changing trust in God. He always repented. He always remained faithful. Even though he knew he would fail, the direction of his life was to honor and to please the Lord. Now let me ask you the same question again. Not walking into a court of law where you know without any shadow of a doubt you're not guilty of the accusations. 
If the accusation was made against you and I, that we have not had a complete commitment to the truth, and that we have not walked with a full commitment to God, would we be willing to say, God, judge me, vindicate me, and come to my defense? I don't believe we often pray a prayer like that, do we? We like to assume a lot of things. Perhaps I'm not as bad as someone else. Perhaps God's been busy with others who are far more sinful than I am. Maybe my sin isn't a big deal. Maybe those little white sins, if you will, don't really capture the attention of God. Well, the second thing that we see here is this prayer for examination. Not only is there a request for vindication for God to judge and defend David's life, there is a prayer for examination. Verse 2, Examine me, O Lord, all cap Lord, meaning Yahweh. Examine me, Yahweh, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Those three words there, examine me, try me, and test me, are synonymous words that have very slight differences, variations, and how you can make application of them. But they all really fit into the same idea. It is the idea of a metallurgist who would take incredibly high heat to melt down metal to remove all of the dross and all of the impurities so that the final product would be absolutely pure. This is what David is asking God to do. Examine me, try me, and test me. Do you have that kind of confidence? I don't. Because I know my heart. But David asks that God would examine him. And what he is asking God to do is to examine the center of his life. What is it that my life is really and truly built upon? What dictates the direction? What determines my values and my priorities? What is my anchor? What am I really centered in? David invites the Lord's omniscient scrutiny of his life. He invites God to take a look into the deep recesses of his life, the one who can see it all, and the one who already knows it all. This request that David is making is not based upon a life of perfection. Because David was a flawed man, just like you and I are flawed men and women. But David is asking God to examine his commitment to the Lord. Do you really occupy the throne of my life? David's prayer of confidence in verse 1, that I have trusted the Lord without wavering. And this request for examination in verse 2, to examine me, to try me, and to test me, is based upon the covenant relationship between God and David. We looked at this in the early study of Psalms. That when David was coronated as the king of Israel, God called him the Anointed One. Not the Messiah, but the Anointed One. The one who was going to have the privileged relationship. The one who was going to be like a son to him. This unbreakable covenant between God and man. This is what David is asking for God to examine. What David is saying this is this, My heart 
and my mind. My love and the entirety of my life is focused on one thing and one thing alone. God is the center of my life. He says in verse 3a, For your loving kindness is before my eyes. The loving kindness of God is an expression of the covenant that God has made with David. And in return, David has made with God. You and I have a similar covenant relationship in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through our faith in the finished work of the cross, through our commitment to make Him our Lord and our Savior, God has made an unbreakable covenant to us And we are to make an unbreakable covenant to Him. And this is to be the basis of the examination that is to take place in our lives. Are you really and truly, by virtue of the work of the cross, my need and my dependence upon that, my profession of faith that you are my Lord and my Savior, are you really and truly the center of my life? Is the loving kindness of God ever before our eyes? When David says the loving kindness of God is before his eyes, it takes him back to the covenant that God made with him. We read this in 2 Samuel. The prophet Nathan says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. This is both true for David and it also has messianic implications because this is true of Jesus who would come from the line of David. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever which will be fulfilled through the life of Solomon. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the epitome of the covenant that God has made with David. And this is what is always before David's life. He can't get away from it. He can't shake it. It is always right there before him. This covenant relationship, this promise from God, is the driving force behind David's life. This covenant, David says, is before my eyes. And that literally means it is in my face. Now, when you and I say that to one another, in your face, we mean something negative by that, don't we? It's almost an insult. It's almost a proof of something that you are or are not because I've proven you to be wrong. But what this means is that the covenant of God is so much in front of David's face that no matter where he goes, no matter where he looks, no matter what he experiences, he sees that unbreakable covenant that God has made with him. You know, as we wander through our lives, as we struggle to know where to go and what to do and how to live and what to think, and we have all these different influences pushing and pulling on us, is the covenant that God has made with us through the Christ and that we have made with God by virtue of our faith in the cross, is that ever before our eyes in such a way that it is literally in our face? You see, that's what the table ought to do to us. That's what the cross ought to do to us. We see people all around us who wear the cross who have absolutely no idea what that means. When we see the cross, it should be a reminder of God's covenant with me and mine with Him. 
unescapable, ever before our eyes. For David, literally, it is the promise of land. It is the future hope of the coming Messiah. It is the constant presence of God for the nation of Israel. And David's personally, David personally was always at the forefront of his life. That covenant that God made with him was always right there. This is what David's life was built upon. Now, we don't look back at the Davidic covenant as the driving force of our life. We simply look at the cross. We look at the empty tomb. We look forward at a future glorification when we will be with God forever based upon His promises and the eternal truth of His Word. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. He is the one who has promised to us His love and His presence and His unbreakable faithfulness towards us by virtue of what He has done for us on the cross. Now, as a result of this covenant that God has made, the loving kindness that is ever before His eyes, David says, therefore, I will be faithful. I will be faithful. As I have walked with an unwavering commitment, I will continue to walk in an unwavering commitment to you. He gives some demonstrations of how this is actually true in his life. Verse 3b, And I have walked in your truth. Literally, I have walked in faithfulness. As God has been faithful to me, I have been faithful to you. To love God first, to follow God only, And as evidence of this commitment, David would avoid those who are not true worshipers of God. And this is likely the individuals who are bringing accusations against him. And here's how he describes these individuals. He says, I will reject evil men. In contrast to the faithfulness of God, David identifies those who are making these accusations against him and says, I will be nothing like those evil men. Men. He says, I do not sit with deceitful men. Verse 4a. Deceitful means worthless. And it's not that these men are worthless. It's the lives that they have built for themselves. It is the direction their life is going is absolutely worthless. There's nothing of any value. Yes, they're still created in the image of God. Yes, the image of God has been forever tarnished by the sin and the fact that they are not true worshipers of God. They are outcasts in the nation of Israel even though they have literally come to the temple to worship with David. He looks at these men and he says, I will reject these evil men. I am nothing like this. These men live worthless lives. They have built their lives on worthless things. They have been dominated by sin. They have given themselves over willingly to a life of sin. And that is not who I am. And that is not the kind of life I am going to live. Verse 4b, nor will I go with pretenders. Pretenders here are hypocrites. These are the play actors. These are the ones who simply talk the talk. They pretend to have a true commitment to the Lord. These are the ones who pretend to have a commitment to the truth. But when you boil down the essence of their life, you don't see evidence of this unwavering commitment to the God of this covenant. They are simply play actors pretending 
to love Him and to follow Him. These individuals have motives and intentions that are not fully known that usually are very self-serving and they want something bad to happen to someone else so that something good can happen to them. The worthless and the hypocrites are collectively called the assembly of evildoers in verse 5. I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. So you imagine for yourself that those who have gathered from the nation of Israel to worship Him, David can look out and he can see the segment of the people who are not true believers, who are not worshiping with the full commitment to God, who are wrongly accusing Him. And he says, I will not sit with them. I don't want to associate with them in any way, shape, or form. And I'm not choosing you even though I point to you. It's figurative. David says, I want nothing to do with these individuals. David despises those who falsely profess allegiance to God, but in fact oppose Him by the very lives that they live. He wants no part of them, and he will not have anything to do with them. We read this as the very first verse in the Psalter, Psalm 1-1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand on the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And this is the kind of commitment and determination that you and I need to have when we associate with those, with those whose lives are built upon worthless things. That doesn't mean that we withdraw from the world. What it means is that we don't saturate ourselves with people of the world who are unregenerate, who want nothing to do with God, and by virtue of the lives they live, completely oppose God. You see, our gathering and our assembly is to be with those who, like us, want to love the Lord and honor the Lord and serve the Lord. This is the kind of people that we are to allow to saturate our lives, to influence our lives, to help guide our lives so that we can have the kind of commitment that honors the covenant that God has made with us through Christ on the cross. His commitment to the loving kindness of God will not allow in any way, shape, or form the wicked or the evildoers to come in and influence Him in any way at all. Now these two prayers are followed intermittently here by this praise that is in worship. David's confidence in God and the judgment on his life and God's defense, his commitment to God to have an unwavering commitment to truth and to following Him enables him to approach God in worship with great excitement. I want you to think about that. Coming to worship God with great excitement. Does that characterize our approach to worship on Sunday mornings? Do we wake up with a great excitement that we can gather with God's people and worship Him and learn from His Word? Is there enthusiasm behind it? Or is it duty? Is it a Sunday obligation? Is it just the right thing to do? Is it the habitual thing to do? You see, David comes to worship with incredible excitement. Why? Because the loving kindness of God is in his face. 
I would guess that there's little more that David would enjoy doing than coming to the tabernacle to worship God. He worships with a pure heart. Verse 6, I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord. Now this doesn't make a lot of sense to us, because worship in David's day is very different from worship in our day. In David's day, because of the elaborate sacrificial system and the ceremonies and the rituals and all the different things that were a part of the formality of worship, it's very difficult for us to connect with what David is saying here. The washing of hands was often something that was done as a part of a ceremony or as a part of a ritual and it symbolized cleansing from impurities, cleansing from those things that would interfere with my ability to worship God and to be able to serve Him. We see an example of this in Exodus chapter 30. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, and this is at the beginning of the building of the tabernacle and the establishment of the worship ritual and ceremony that the nation of Israel would be asked to follow. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet from it. So if you were the assembly and this was the altar, there would be a basin of water that anyone who came to the altar would have to wash in to symbolically cleanse themselves from any kind of impurity. David says, I have washed my hands in innocence, not in the ceremonial cleansing, but in the cleansing of my innocence before you knowing that I have walked a life of authenticity and integrity committed to the truth and fulfilling your covenant the best that I know how to do. Although David was not a perfect man, his wholehearted devotion to the Lord allows him to approach the altar of God with absolute purity of heart. He can offer his sacrifice. He can come to the Lord and worship. He can approach the very presence of God with a clean conscience knowing he is fully devoted to the Lord. Do we share in that kind of confidence? Do we share in that purity of heart when we come to worship God? You see, if we commune with Him on a daily basis, and if we prepare ourselves before we come to worship, when we get here, we're ready to hear from the Lord. We're ready to experience His powerful presence in our lives. We shouldn't come with the expectation of getting clean. We should come with the expectation of celebrating the greatness and the majesty and the splendor of God because we are already clean. We're confessed up. We fully repented. We are ready to restore our commitment to the Lord's covenant with us in whatever way we ought. David comes with a pure heart. He also comes with a thankful heart. Verse 7. He comes that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. David wants nothing more than to gather in the house of God with God's people and just proclaim with thanksgiving in his heart who he is and what he's done. I've said this before. We come to church, like a former pastor of mine used to say, my name is Jimmy and I want all you can give me. We don't come to give thanksgiving. We come to get from the Lord. 
That's not David's perspective at all. David wants to celebrate God's goodness and his faithfulness and his presence and his provision and his perfect fulfillment of the covenant God has made with him. The word wonders here, to declare all your wonders, that word there is translated miracles. And if anybody could celebrate the miracles of God, it was the nation of Israel. Even quickly, as you think back to all that God has done for and with and on behalf of the nation of Israel, the miracles that have proclaimed His power and His presence and His love for His people. A central part of our worship is our thankfulness to God for who He is, for what He has done. Not giving to us what we deserve, but instead doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. When our worship is centered on what we want and on what we think we need, we lose sight of who God is. We lose sight of the true purpose in worship. We worship because God is. You could stop right there. Because God is, we have every reason to worship. God is worthy of our worship. God is holy. God is righteous. God is faithful. God is loving. God is patient. God is good in every way. His love is unsearchable. His goodness unfathomable. And we worship because of who He is. Oh yeah, by the way, God saves, God restores, and God promises. And we have the hope, the confidence, the promise of an eternity with Him when we can see Him as He really is, when we can be freed from the presence of sin, have all of the blinders stripped away, and to see the glory of God that will absolutely rock us to our very core. God is worthy of worship. Our gathering on Sunday morning should be to worship God. He worships with a pure heart. He worships with a thankful heart. Thirdly, He worships with a happy heart. Verse 8, O Lord, O Yahweh, I love the habitation of Your house and the place where Your glory dwells. David loved going to the tabernacle. He loved going to God's house. This is an absolute direct reference to the very tabernacle of God that represents God's presence amongst His people and it is the place where His glory dwells. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? That was the place where God figuratively sits and it is the center of God's glory. The temple or the church is symbolic of God. We often call it God's house because it figuratively represents where God dwells in our worship experience. But we know that if this building were to go away, this church, this people of God would still exist. We would find some place we could gather together for the purpose of worshiping God. Our worship of God, our experience of the presence of God is not dependent on bricks and mortar. It is dependent upon the covenant that God has made with us, that He is our God and we are His people. David happily worships God because he is a part of the assembly of God. He is a part of God's family and he is privileged to be in God's house and able to know something about the glory of God. 
God lives in the midst of His people. And when we gather together, we are to celebrate the presence of God amongst us. We are to celebrate the work of God behind us. And the provision of God before us. And that is what is to drive our worship together. When we gather, we centralize His presence amongst us by submitting ourselves to His Lordship through worship and obedience to His Word. You and I should love to come to church because we love God, we love worshiping God, and we love fellowshipping with God's family. It's the praise and worship. Now, the last prayer that David makes here, we're going to move very quickly through this, the prayer for preservation. Now, this is a little confusing when you read it in a cursory way and don't give thought to what David is actually saying. David is not unsure of his relationship with God. He's not fearful that God would somehow rescind his covenant because God, David understands that this covenant with God is unbreakable. He is so enthralled in the worship of God and he is so struck between the contrast of the assembly of God's people and the assembly of the wicked man of those who don't know God and who don't love God, he recognizes how privileged he is and how easy it would be for him to fall away, to be lured into a life of sin, to give in the temptation that is all around him, to be something other than what God has determined for him to be. And so he prays for continued faithfulness and power to keep his life pure and free from contamination. And this prayer is based upon his faith in God and God's continued grace for him. So he says, first of all, do not let me fall away. Verse 10, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, in whose right hand is... is I'm sorry, move back up. Uh, don't let me fall away. Do not take my soul along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed. He does not want to be associated with those who are not going to have the ability to stand before God. He describes them in verse 10 as those whose hands is a wicked scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. There isn't a sense of God voiding His covenant, but as David saying, he doesn't want to be like those who don't truly love the Lord. Since God is the center of David's life, and God's covenant is always before David. David wants nothing to do with those who do not love God because they have no standing before God. If you remember back in Psalm 5, we read this together. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. David knows what God loves and he knows what God hates and he wants to be faithful to God because he values God above everything else. Don't let me slip away not even a little bit into a life that would resemble those who do not truly love you and are not truly committed to obeying you and following you. It is a prayer for David to love what God loves and to hate what God hates so that he can be faithful to this covenant. In this prayer of preservation, David also prays that God would allow me to be faithful. 
As I have been faithful in the past, allow me to continue to be faithful in the future. Verse 11, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. This is not a presumptuous statement that David is making. Oh, I know I'm never going to fall away. I know nothing bad is ever going to come out of my life. David's not saying that at all. He is saying that I want to be faithful and I am in dependency upon you to redeem me and to be gracious to me. A part of what David's saying here is a restatement of what was said in verse 1. This confidence that he has been living in God's truth and it is continued desire to live in God's truth with a full commitment to this covenant relationship. He is relying on the grace of God to continue that path despite what his accusers might be saying about him. The word redeem here is not in the sense of initiating their relationship, but it is in rescuing him from the false accusations that are being made against him by these accusers. Redeem me, God. These people have tarnished my commitment to you, my love for you, my faith in you, and I want you to redeem that back so that everybody knows what is actually true. This is expressed in Psalm 44. And David says, Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. It is that sense of coming in and rescuing him from these adversaries or from these accusers. It is a request for God's continued preservation that he would be enabled to fulfill his walk with the Lord in a way that would reflect the covenant that God had made with him. Thirdly, David is sure of his standing. He says in verse 12, My foot stands on a level place. In the congregations I shall bless the Lord. David is sure of his uprightness before the Lord. He is sure that he is walking in God's truth. He's not sliding down a hill. He's not climbing up the hill. He says, I am standing on level ground, sure that I am living the kind of life that is pleasing to you. Do we share in that confidence that David has? The uprightness of life? Are we willing to ask God to examine our lives with incredible scrutiny? Do we come to worship with great joy because of what God has done? Because of the kind of life we're living? And do we continue to walk day by day with an in-our-face understanding of our need for God's continued grace and mercy towards us. As I think about coming to the table and coming to worship, we really do take it for granted. We are so privileged by God to know the truth. But as we know the truth, we're challenged to live in the truth. And I know as sure as this day has come, we're going to fail. Aren't we? We're not going to fulfill it in the way that we would like. But you and I can be sure of this. God's grace is sufficient. His mercy is inexhaustible. And His presence with us is expressed through an unbreakable covenant through our faith in Christ on the cross. Do you celebrate that today? I hope you do. Let's